0: Well, these are days
1: of commencement,
0: often thought of as an end, when the word doesn't mean an end, does it? It really speaks of what it truly intends, that this is only the beginning, to commence or to begin. Did you know that Jesus gave a commencement address? we may think that we have come to an end because we finished the Gospel of Mark, when really we're at the very beginning of what would then come. The disciples, too, may have thought that they were at the end as well. He had promised the arrival of the kingdom. The death, burial, and resurrection were over and completed. Surely this was the end. And then He gives his commencement address. And then he ascends into heaven, leaving them with an assignment. Obviously, things are not over. And what he has last said is all about what has yet to be done. So, actually, Nancy read for us his commencement address. In Matthew 28:16 through 20. Don't you wish all commencement addresses were that short? Now, in all fairness, we need to go to Acts chapter 1, <coughs> because in Acts chapter 1 is the rest or another part of <coughs> the commencement address. Let me begin in verse 5. For John was baptized with water, but in a few days, Jesus says, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he had said this, He was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking up intently into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So I think those two things kind of constitute Jesus' commencement address. Here in this passage in Acts, he expands on some of the words in Matthew 28. And we see that they had thought that they were near the end. Are you now going to restore the kingdom of heaven? And then the angel reiterates that this is not the end until he returns. And he will return as certainly as he came. So we are going to spend the next four weeks looking at what we're calling the last command. Last in the sense of Jesus' last words on earth. Command in the sense of what He has for us to commence into. And perhaps, as we've done before, we'll see a little bit of irony in the last words being such a motivator for next things. So I want us to begin with some last words. There are a couple sets of last words that we need to begin with. Because I can't help but think there's a little bit of an elephant in the room as we pick up the very verses that we read out of Matthew chapter 28. Verse 16. Then, assuming that something has happened before, the eleven disciples went into Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Then, speaks of what's already happened, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. Well, if you'll recall from last week, that ties perfectly in to Mark chapter 16. When the angel speaks to the women at the tomb, don't be alarmed, he said, you are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified, he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So the end of Mark says go to Galilee. We get to the end of Matthew. They're in Galilee at the mountain waiting to see him. But if we open our Bibles to the end of Mark and then I tie you to the end of Matthew, the elephant in the room is the rest of Mark. I stopped at verse 8. What about these verses at the end of Mark? I don't know how your Bible may list them in mine. They're in italics, they have brackets around them. They have this comment at the top that says the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have verses 9 through 20. And obviously, I didn't preach on those verses. So, what about this? ending of Mark. And it seems like such an abrupt ending at verse 8. Hmm. Let me address this because of what it will mean in applying, believe it or not, the last command. Even in these words, we find motivation to trust and obey and to step into next things. So let me open by sharing some thoughts from a pastor friend of mine on this ending in Mark. What we have in hand is the Word of God. It is authoritative. The Holy Spirit inspired this Word of God as His truth to us. Its veracity compared to ancient writings is hardly even comparable. One of the oldest documents that we have is Homer's Iliad. It was written in 700 B.C., But the earliest copy that we have of Homer's Iliad is 1200 A.D. And we have about 643 copies of that. The History of Herodotus, written in 425 B.C. The earliest copy we have is about 900 A.D. And we only have eight of those. Josephus Jewish Wars was written in AD 70. The earliest copy we have is 8,400, and we only have nine of those. The histories of Tacitus were written at 100 AD. The earliest copy we have of those is 400 .AD. and we only have two of those. Now, compare that to the New Testament in Greek, completed by AD100, the earliest copies going back to 800. 88 A.D. And we have 5,735 copies of the Greek New Testament in one form or another. Then we have the New Testament in other languages written by 200 A.D. And we have over 19,000 of those. And by taking all of these 25,000 copies and comparing them, you find... Very little difference indeed. This longer ending of the book of Mark that we put in brackets and italics and say it's not in the manuscripts, the original manuscripts, or in the oldest, actually, copies that we have, breeds confidence, not doubt. The inclusion of these verses in brackets with an explanation should bring confidence to the accuracy of the translation of the Bible that you actually possess. The science of textual criticism actually assures us of the accuracy of the Bible that we have. The careful attention brought to the study of these 25,000 biblical manuscripts means that we have and have been extremely careful in analyzing what we have and that what we have is absolutely accurate. And what is questionable as to whether it is in a, a later inclusion or not, is openly labeled for you so that you can know. The original ending of the book of Mark is verse 8. Now that may disappoint you, if, especially if you like verse 15, go into all the world and preach the gospel. That's okay. We have other endings that include that, that are in the oldest manuscripts. Of course, maybe you don't want verses 9 through 20 included, because you don't think you should be handling snakes and thinking you won't be bitten. Hmm. Verse 18. The gospel of Mark ends abruptly, but as John MacArthur says, it is not incomplete. All that needed to be said is said. The tomb is empty. The angelic announcement is made. Christ has been risen. The disciples have witnessed it. Everything that Mark set out to do was done. As I've been saying over and over again, verse one, chapter 1, verse 1 says that he was writing to demonstrate that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. And all that has been said points to that reality. Chapter 15, verse 39 records the centurion's words, truly this was the Son of God. Mark's sudden ending is as abrupt as, abrupt as his sudden beginning. Mark skips the birth of Christ. He ties the person of Christ to an Old Testament prophecy and then he immediately jumps into his baptism and his inauguration into ministry. Throughout the gospel, Mark is brief and he's quick. He pushes the narrative along quickly by using the word immediately uh, 39 times. Mark has begun in a rush and now he quickly brings the gospel narrative to what seems to be, to us, an untimely ending perhaps. So why the rush? It conveys The urgency of the gospel message. It conveys the power of the gospel to have instant results. It conveys the immediate obedience of Christ. Even verse 9 that speaks of the trembling and the fear of these women. They were not afraid for their lives. They were stunned. They were shocked. And they were amazed. They were amazed that the man that they had watched be beaten and die... And be buried, that they loved, the man that said he would come back to life actually had. Wouldn't you be amazed? Their amazement is like the amazement we see throughout the whole gospel. Chapter 1, verse 22, the crowds were amazed at Christ's teaching. And then in verse 27, they were amazed at his casting out of demons. And then in chapter 2, they say, we've never seen anything like this. And in chapter 5, they are astounded by what he's saying and what he's doing. And in chapter 10, verse 24, they were amazed at how he confronted the rich young ruler over and over again. There is amazement just like these women at the very end. So Mark finishes his gospel with the same sort of urgency and amazement with which he began. We have in hand the living Word of God. The more I study it, the more I'm convinced of the reality of its truth. The more I live it, the more I see its transforming power. The more I obey it, the more of God's peace I know. And the more I read, the fuller my heart grows. If this were not the Word of God, Our time here together would be a waste of time. We do not have the original manuscripts of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We can be grateful. If we did, they would be enshrined and worshipped in a museum somewhere. The translation you have... NIV NASB NAV uh, NIV or what i say NASB ESV or the NLT all of them are accurate and trustworthy they are god speaking to you it's a love letter it's an historical account of his loving redemption he wants you to know him and he wants you to be radically changed by what he's revealed through what he's written we need to read it and believe it and then live it for god has Preserve this truth in, a, in an amazing and a remarkable way are you amazed by that that we have so many copies that we can compare so that we can have such a trust in what we have in our hands is that stunning is that awe striking it ought to be so in Mark's purpose it is complete as it stands the establishment of Jesus as the Messiah and the Son of God and our faith in Him. Each of the other Gospels finish with more about the future, the task left for us. God has given us the other Gospels for these continued purposes. So, from Matthew and Luke and John, we can learn more about our follow-through on all of the foundation that Mark has laid. And even, I've mentioned to you before, Mark wrote first and the others followed the foundation, followed his, uh, his writing as a foundation on which they built according to who they were writing to as their purpose and their audience. So from these last words of Mark, we can understand that God's word is credible in its accuracy. Now, let's move to Matthew chapter 28 and consider these last words of Jesus. The very natural transition is what I showed you from Mark chapter 16. Matthew picks up where Mark finishes as he finishes. And there are two definite responses. There are very defined responses to Jesus when they see him. They worshipped him. They praised the priests who took their place, as we've been talking about. But some of them doubted. And that's where I'd like us to start today. Jesus has an answer for that, just as clear and definitive. He wants to establish who's the boss. So we can rest in that. So he says, all authority has been given unto me. What does authority mean? It means permissible, allowed, given permission, the right or the liberty to do. But it also means the power to do it. We have right and we have might. We see that in Matthew chapter 9 when he heals the, uh, the crippled man brought to him on a stretcher. Jesus forgives his sins. They're all appalled. And then Jesus says, But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. So, get up and walk. He has the right, because of who he is, and he has the might to prove who he is. So let me give you a couple of illustrations of that. Some of you know that I ride my bike. A few are impressed by that. But it's a rather relative discussion regarding right and might. There's going to be an Ironman competition in the Adirondacks this summer. Now let me just explain what an Ironman is. 2.4 miles of swimming, 112 point something miles of a bike ride. I don't know why it's 112 something, but it is. 112 miles on a bicycle. And then once you're done with that, you run for 26 miles. That's an Ironman. Scott Millard is going to do that this summer. So, I go out and I ride 30 miles, and I'm done. I'm telling you, I'm done. Did you know that I may compete in the Iron Man in the Adirondacks this summer? Did you know that? What you know is that I can't compete in the Iron Man this summer. I just may because I have permission. Because anybody can sign up. I asked out this week, I said, can anybody sign up for this? Oh yeah, sure, anybody can sign up. Now, if you don't keep up, at a certain point, they just pull you out, you know, <laughs> of the water, maybe. Um, I may because I have permission. I can't because I'm not able. Scott goes out on Saturday mornings and he rides 100 miles. So every Saturday morning I try and run th- ride 30 miles. He rides 100. And you know what he does after he gets off the bike? He runs. I sit down because I'm not able. There's a difference between permission and ability. Inversely, you know that my brother worked for Homeland Security. And he was quite high in that. And he used to have a badge with single digits on it. The higher you get, the lower your number gets. And so he could go into any airport at any time and walk down any concourse onto any plane that he wanted to. And he would do that. He's He's been known to go in and find my mother right where she was seated and help her out of the plane and get her through everything. You know, because he could. He just could. So he works in Brussels now with the World Customs Organization And my daughter and the rest of the team were flying through Brussels And they had about a three or four hour layover And I said to him, hey, go see your niece You know what he said to me? I can't I'm just a regular Joe like everybody else He doesn't have the badge anymore He doesn't have the authority anymore Now, we know that he can because he can walk through an airport and he can walk down and, you know, walk into an area where. But he's not allowed to. He doesn't have permission. There are two levels of wonder in the reality of Jesus Christ's authority. He may, because he's capable. I'm sorry, he may because he has permission, and he can because he's capable. And as if that's not enough. It says he has all authority in heaven and on earth and that means all kinds every sort including every possible variety the greatest the utmost supreme all possible in heaven and on earth absolute authority that's what he has you have permission to a lot to do a lot of things that you can't do And maybe you think you have the ability to do certain things that you don't have the permission to. He has all authority. As Scott and I work through this series together these four weeks, and we're going to be sharing it, we'll be referring to some myths that we commonly have regarding the last command that an author by the name of J.S. Shaw has put together. And here's the first of these myths. Making disciples is good advice. That's one of our myths about the Great Command, the last command, the Great Commission. Making disciples is good advice. He says, cultural Christianity loves this myth. Cultural Christians love to sing the praises of disciple makers while simultaneously avoiding, through the most crafty cop-outs, personal obedience to the Great Commission. As if the Great Commission were like, I don't know, chiropractic care do you go to a chiropractor i go to a chiropractor you want to go to a chiropractor they're really helpful they've helped me i've had bike accidents and they've been able to help my neck be so much better and not my you know not have headaches and what are you going to do with that information that i just gave you because i think chiropractors are just wonderful you're going to decide whether you think they're wonderful or not what about organic food you ought to eat organic food. It has all that stuff that's not in there that you shouldn't eat. And you're going, yeah, 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 yeah. And I don't have a budget to pay for all of that expensive stuff that a bunch of hippies grow, you know. I mean, coupon usage or wholesale shopping. You ought to do that, just like the Great Commission. See, it's not bad. It's just up to me if I'm going to act on it or not. And do we know what determines what happens with this approach? We decide based on what we've determined as our greater values whether we're going to take this as good advice or as the last command. We're going to decide whether safety and reduced risk is a higher value. I I, I can't put myself at that kind of risk. Or life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, after all, that's in the preamble of the Constitution. Isn't that in the Bible too? How about family over everything? I mean, you can't ask me to go and do that. I, I would have to distance myself from my loved ones. We wouldn't ever want to say this out loud, but do you see how the values that we've decided regarding safety or risk or life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness or the value of our personal families can become a value greater than a command? And so we take it as good advice. Now, when those things are equal, then those things are equal factors to be true. Uh, consider. But what happens when they're not? What happens when all authority says go? That's not safe. I've literally had people say to us when we were headed to the mission field that's dangerous. Yeah. Oh, so implicitly I shouldn't do it? Oh, well um into all the world. Trust me, that's not the pursuit of personal happiness. Make disciples of all nations. That has implicit implications on the family. Because if I'm going to make a disciple of another nation, I'm implicitly going to be a long way from those I call my family. Listen, no one is going to do these unintuitive, self denying, personal threatening things unless they come to grips with the reality of a higher authority. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 9 I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach. What does a proper response to all authority look like? It looks like an order, not a suggestion. Are you under orders? Are you weighing God's helpful advice against your predetermined values? Or are you listening to all authority? The credibility of the Scriptures and the significance of the authority the one who speaks these words, has everything to do with how you will respond to these words today. The last command is significant in its authority, and we can be confident without any doubt on those words because of the credibility of the Scriptures. The only credibility in question then becomes our own. J.S. Shaw says, you cannot love Jesus and not obey him. You cannot disregard the great commission and claim to love Jesus. I mean, who is the boss after all? But just before we finish this thought, if it's only about the stick in the sense of the authority that he can tell us to do this, then we will ar- resent. We will resent his authority. That this authority is not about him just making us do something. It is about our resting in his authority. Not about what motivates us to obey what he tells us to do. If it's only about the stick, like he can tell us what to do, then we will resent his authority. What we have to see is... And we have to look at is what God has done to make sure that it's not just about the stick. The Old Testament unfolds his amazing plan. And we have this Word that we can read so that we can see how He has consistently, coherently, marvelously unfolded a plan and loved His people with such patience all the way along until He finally personally arrives in the, per- per- in the person of His Son. And we, as we've studied through Mark's, have seen how tangible and how loving and how amazing He has been and His patience in walking with His disciples, with us, to help us see all that He is and how good He is. And He's demonstrated His love beyond anything imaginable as we've tried to wrap our heads around the depth of the significance of His death and His burial and His resurrection. And then at the end, after He's done all of that, He exercises His authority and says, go. He exercises His authority to give us confidence in the one for whom we go. And even in that, this authority that He has, according to what we saw in Matthew chapter 9, He did to heal, to teach, to love, to develop. Finally, He gives a command, not a suggestion. You can't resent that. You can ignore it. You can refuse it. You can twist it. But you can't resent that kind of authority because He hasn't made it about the stick. He's made it about who He is. And at the very end, he finally says, now, so that you can rest in who I am, that I have permission and I have the power, go in my name and do this. Let's make the command about the love behind it. And in fact, that's what he said. If you love me, you will do what I command. This is Jesus' commencement address. What are you going to do with it? If that's all it is to you is a commencement address, then you will do with it what you do with every other commencement address you've ever heard. Absolutely nothing. But if it is more than that, if it is indeed the last command, From the one that you can trust, with all the might and right, who speaks compelling words because of his immeasurable love for you. If his last command is credible in its accuracy, is significant for its authority, is compelling because of its loving source then this will shape your thinking, your perspective, and your behavior because of who it is that has said it. He is the boss in the most gracious and benevolent senses. And you'll take that to heart, and you will commit, consider how you will then commence. Now next week we're going to look at the getting to work and, and how we begin to respond to that. But for today, permission must be given for him to even speak such change into your life. So who is is the boss? Not who's in charge, as much as who are you resting in as you would have to risk, as you would have to compromise personal freedoms and liberties, as you would have to distance yourself, potentially, from those that you love. You can trust this word that he tells you. You can rest in his authority to guide you. And you can act in response to his immeasurable love for you. Because of who he is. What He's said. And what he's proven. So. Will you give him permission? Let's pray about that. Heavenly Father, thank You for all that You've done that we have rehearsed once again today and reminded ourselves of how patient and loving, how consistent, how coherent, and in what marvelous ways You have unfolded this plan, proven beyond the shadow of a doubt, Its veracity, its integrity, and its compassion. And now you say to us as your followers that we must obey. Thank you that it's not just about you being some kind of tyrant that demands that we do, but rather a marvelous Master who compels us because of what You've done. So I ask that You would work in our hearts and minds in this time and in this week that as we return to these very, very familiar words to so many of us, we would in a new way give You permission to work to show us, to open our eyes, to compel us to obey because we love you knowing how much you've loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.